Hi, welcome back to the Friends of Enpace podcast. I'm here with the famous Sean Dent. I'm going to let him introduce himself again. If you missed it, this is part two of a conversation. In part one, we talked about all kinds of things that are really good. So I'm not going to rehash that. Everyone should go listen. I'm Terry Schmidt. I'm the executive director at Enpace. Sean, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Sean Dent. I'm an acute care nurse practitioner. I'm uh, mostly, if not always, in the ICUs. I've been a nurse for almost 20 years, been in the ICU for over 10 of those, and I currently work in a level two trauma urban hospital where I provide critical care services to several different ICUs. Thanks for having me again. Thanks for being here again. We've monopolized <laughs> so much of your time in the last six months. So I think you're like an honorary base staff member. At no, I don't know if you would say monopolize. I'm volunteering. So. You are. And um, one of the, you mentioned on the last episode, how long we've known each other. And so at least 15 years, I would agree. That's when I started out doing the Twitter thing and we connected, but I, roped you into coming to our first acute care NP conference and giving us some feedback. We'll get to that. I, I don't yeah. want to start there, <laughs> but I do. So I want to talk about, I want to change our focus and I want to talk about student NPs and new NPs, because I think you and I will have a little bit of similar, but also different perspectives because mine is primary care and yours is acute care. And again, we will go back to pre versus post pandemic because the world of education was changing even pre pandemic and COVID just accelerated changes in NP education. It's part of why I've moved into this realm because I couldn't impact so much what was happening pre education side. So how how's acute care with the students and the new NPs? Let's start there. I don't. I'm going to slightly disagree with you. I don't think the pandemic has changed it much. Okay. Probably because acute care programs are still very much underserved. As in, if you have a would-be interested student who's interested in advancing their career to be an NP, go to Google, search programs. I guarantee you the first several pages are going to be primary care you have to dig for an acute care program. So most acute care programs nowadays are either a cohort, a combined, or strictly online because there's just no other options right now. I got lucky in the the area of the world that I live in that there was an acute care program that was within driving distance um, way back in the day. <laughs> um, I chose to drive 70 miles one way to go to these classes because I, at the time, I felt I could get a better experience using the, the traditional brick and mortar school. Since then, my opinion has definitely changed. I think that, I think that online versus brick and mortar, I don't think there's a difference when it comes to the educational program itself. It comes down to the learner, as in the student, you know, do they learn better face-to-face -face, real time, or are they okay with segmented um, at your own pace kind of learning? So how are students doing 
these days, I don't think anything's changed. I think they all still say the same things. They all still feel very unprepared. They all still have horrible um, imposter syndrome. They all still are amazed at how much they have to know that they're scared out of their minds because most nurse practitioners, they usually parlay into an area that they're comfortable with. Most do. I have plenty of ICU nurses that go on to be family, family nurse practitioners, which, you know, it's, it, it, it is what it is. But for the most part, when you as a nurse have worked with, talked with, or experienced a nurse practitioner, you and your mind are like, I can do that. That doesn't seem too hard. I mean, they're doing the stuff that I already know how to do. I can do that. <laughs> and then, and they, then they, they go, go to school. And then they start the program and they, the wind gets taken out of their sails. The, the carpet gets pulled out from under their feet. And in, and in my terms, they get slapped in the face with how much they actually are required to know, you know, and then they, most nurse practitioner students, when they do their clinicals, they are, they are exposed to, you know, re medical residents, physician residents, and then they realize how much physicians have to know. And that scares them even more. Because then they're like, how am I supposed to know that? And be responsible for it. Yeah. I think that was the biggest thing. So a little bit of fear is not a bad thing. But I remember, you know, that whole issue of writing the wrong order or the wrong drug. It wasn't just a med error at the bedside anymore. The buck stopped with me. Yeah. Yeah. I always say that. I'm like, you go from the person who signs the piece of paper as the bedside nurse to being the person who has their name at the bottom of the page because now you're responsible now you're giving the orders as opposed to as opposed to accepting the orders or carrying out the orders so you know it's that's a conversation about the nursing brain versus the you know because you got to go you have to transition from a nursing mindset to a medicine mindset well i still use my nursing brain a lot it's yeah coming really you handy still, you still you have to change your way of thinking i you have to work in terms of diagnoses working diagnoses whereas in the world of nursing you're i mean we're not going to talk about nursing diagnoses because that's just what you don't want to talk about nick knock and nanda come on it's gonna pain me but we're not going to do that. But I I hear what you're saying. And, and that transition to making a list and even understanding what a differential diagnosis versus the actual primary and secondary diagnosis yeah. Yeah. and complicating factors and, yeah. and writing that all out. Yeah, that's a big transition for people. I, it's almost like coming out of nursing school. Remember when you came out of nursing gonna, school? You and I are and on the same. Yeah. I, the first two years, I pretty much didn't know anything. I mean, I did. Oh, I was very smart and I, I passed my, my RN, NCLEX, and it's still, and I think my first two years of NP practice, well, some days, heck, I've been doing this a while. 
some days it's still, I learn something every day. It's unrealistic expectations to think that when you graduate from NP school, that you're going to know what you're doing. It's an unrealistic expectation that we, we force upon our students. You're not going to know what to do. In fact, you're going to be even more clueless because now you have more in your brain than you did when you started. And then you have to swirl that all around and figure out how to create a plan. Not only recognize working diagnoses, but then come up with a plan that actually helps your patients. And that takes time. Agreed. You know, it, it, it sadly, it is, it mirrors nursing education as an entry-level nurse, whether you're doing a diploma program or BSM program, we are giving you the tools to pass an exam. That's all we're doing. We're not teaching you how to actually be a nurse. We're not teaching you how to, to do the skills required. We're not teaching you time management skills. We're not teaching you crisis management skills. We're not teaching you advocacy. We're literally teaching you. We're scraping the surface so that you can pass an exam. Well, I mean, there's only so much time. And also, <laughs> I mean, yes, there's only so much time. And education models have changed. We'll get back into that. I mean, I don't want to be the person who said I walked uphill both ways to school in the snow, but I'm a diploma grad. And so by the end of school, I was managing a team of patients on a med surge floor. It's kind of how it went. So yeah. Anyway, back in the day. Oh my. <laughs> I know. I think we didn't even have, I had gas lamps and probably was sharpening my own needles back then. That was so long ago. Okay. So no, no one cares how old I am or how decrepit I am. I, I agree with you. No one's going to know. This is why I think we're seeing new NPs leave the profession quickly too, because they're making less money than they were at the bedside with a heck of a lot more responsibility, more time. We're, we're five days a week in primary care and they're working 10 to 12 hour days. If they're going to get their charting and everything else done, they've got all of this production to put out. There's so much business knowledge. We're not teaching in NP school for sure. I just think it'll, it'll be like bedside and staff nursing. We're just seeing an exodus into this. However, in the U S the majority of primary care is now provided by nurse practitioners and PAs because we have seen an exodus of physicians as well. I mean, that's the, you know, the, that's the result of decades of inadequacies not being supported. And then, like I said, in the last episode, COVID not only exposed all the cracks that were already there, but it gave us the gumption and the courage to say, enough's enough yeah that we're not staying out of out of guilt we're not we're not accepting you know the microaggressions anymore yeah we're we're, we're done suffering yep i remember i was taught in p school if a physician came into the the nurse's station you had to get up and give him your chair hey, well, i think i may have said, shared this with you since you opened up that bag of tricks um, when I was, when I was a bedside nurse, I was an ICU nurse in an old, uh, older hospital. We had just, we had just transitioned to an EMR. That's how old I am is that, you know, ICU and everything yes. was done on paper and in then the big, 
binders. Those were yeah. my favorite. Yeah, it transitioned to an, an EMR that was horribly clunky. Um, but it, at the beginning of those, those first formative years, there weren't enough computers. So, so everybody had to share. Everybody had to share, mm-hmm. right? I was charting on my patient and one of the physicians asked me to get out of their chair and I wouldn't get out of the chair because guess what? My job is just as important as your job because guess what? Those patients require me just as much as they require you. You know, so I was, I was stubborn back then and I got reported. (laughs) I got reported. Look at you outing yourself. I got reported. Yeah. So they reported me to the nursing supervisor who then had to come and tell me, you know, sidebar. She was like, Sean, I'm not doing anything. I'm nothing's going to go any further than this, but you should be aware that that doctor reported you for, for not getting out of their chair. Out of their chair. I love that. It's such a transition in my years in practice from that to being an NP, having such a beautiful collaboration with some of the physicians who appreciate the nursing profession now even more to where I am now in my clinical. And yes, I'm doing telehealth, but that's a whole nother discussion. And it's really pushed my brains to the limits of data collecting and logic where I used to trust my hands and my eyes. But the physicians I work with, phenomenal and such a team. I I never dreamed that I would, in my years in healthcare, be where I am now. And we're all in this together. Everybody's got the same goal. We all have the same goal in the end. But isn't that that's, you know, there's all the negative things that have happened in healthcare with nursing and education of the students. But that's an amazing positive aspect is that our profession now has more of the respect that we've been asking for for decades because we're being recognized as an equivalent provider. We also stay in our lane where we should. Absolutely. But, but that I, I don't we want are another lane. We are recognized for our strengths. You know, like mm-hmm. I know would have never thought in a million years that I would be managing what I manage and that physicians world-renowned surgeons come to me for an answer instead of them telling me what they're doing they text me call me hey sean so-and-so this 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 and this what do you think we should do yeah and that's the growth that's the growth of the profession right there yeah i get that too in diabetes but it's it's likewise and so we call it a hive where i work and we have this discussion board and i can just type in hey does anyone know about travel medicine for prevention of malaria in XYZ country? And I'll have a nurse practitioner and an infectious disease doctor and everyone DM me back and say, look here, do this, ask questions. It's such a beautiful thing. And that's what we do. We all bring our strengths to the table, right? So That takes time as well. And yes. I think, you know, back to your original question is that I think... <sighs> I don't know why the profession, the NP profession, has brainwashed these students into thinking that they're going to know what to do when they get out there. And I always tell every single NP that that comes through my doors is that you're going to, it's going to take about three years, two years minimum. And if you're really good at the job, maybe 18 months. 
but you really, I mean, you gotta, you gotta be picture perfect at 18 months. It's going to take two to three years for you to get comfortable in your new NP skin, because you're going to need to develop skills that you have yet to recognize. It's the, you know, um, it's the Dunning-Kruger effect at its best that you don't know what you don't know until you're exposed to it. And then it kind of like scares you like, oh, I thought I knew what I was doing. No, you don't. You don't know what you're doing. So you need to lean heavily on the people around you. And I think that's where we're losing new NPs is that your first job sets the stage for your entire career. And you have to take it that seriously is that most people graduate, go into the profession and they're going into it one, because they want to do all these cool things, but two, to make the money. And usually the money trumps the cool things. So they want to go make the money instead of the cool things. And the money isn't where you're taught how to do the job. And I think that's where we need to lead them more and more is that you need to find an environment that's going to teach you how to do this job, not only from APPs, but also willing, able and collaborative physicians that have a track record of collaboration. You can't go into a practice where they have no idea what you do, how what you're capable of and have never trained an NP before. Because or their fail, or their previous NP turnover's been high. I ask that question. You don't take look. Money's a myth. I, I work in primary care, <laughs> mostly. I mean, there is, I think there's money to be made, but it takes time. Because well, you know, don't do this job for money. You're gonna be sorely disappointed. It's like leadership. Never take yeah. a leadership job for money. I mean, it, it all depends on where you go, the geography, the, the specialty. I know many NPs who have been doing it as long as I have, they're making way more money than me. So it, oh. I think it's it's really, it's just a bag of tricks. H- hook me up with where they are. <laughs> and pace, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding and pace. I love my job. I think loving your work is so much more important. And I think it's really important what you just said about that first job. Don't just take the first one and feel it out. And if it sounds too good to be true, it is too good to be true. I think you you need to you need to teach these students what questions to ask in an interview. You don't can't just go to Google, can't just ask your colleagues or your or your classmates or people that you used to work with. You need some formal education on interviewing skills and what you really need to know and ask as a brand new NP. Everything from contract negotiations responsibilities, expectations, how am I going to be trained? How long is that training going to be? What are my resources? (laughs) I'm writing this down. What are my resources during that process? After that process, who's going to be checking up on me? You know, it should be an in-depth and intimate conversation and experience. You know, we have a in my practice, I, we have the, the the added benefit of always having students. Always, there's always a student showing up. I love that you're in a learning institution, though, right? Yeah, and okay. uh, a PA student 
is rotating with us because they have an idea of critical care and they have an interest. And, you know, I'm, if you don't know me, I'm kind of brutally honest. <laughs> what? No, not you. I mean, I'm not rude, but I'm, I'll tell you the things you need to hear, not the things you want to hear. Um, and I, I flat out told them that this is overwhelming. This is going to bury you. It'll be challenging and scary, but it's also one of the coolest jobs you could ever have. But it's going to take a long time before you figure that out. So if after this, you really want to interview for a critical care job, make sure that your first job teaches you. And I've been saying that for a long time, is that your first job has to teach you how to do the job. It's not enough to have the skills to create a, a working diagnosis because the working diagnosis is 10% of your job. That's quite honestly, sometimes the easy part is figuring out the working diagnosis. What's more important is, you know, therapeutic communication, crisis mm. management, being able to talk with difficult families and patients, being able to talk with difficult providers conflict management with difficult co-workers and difficult you know physicians resource allocation and quite honestly mental health i'm writing all this down I, I this she's frantically writing it all down do you know why uh, oh <laughs> just so everyone knows you know we had we had some continuing education here it was supposed to be a conference and then the pandemic happened and so it was our first stab at recording something for on demand education which we're going to talk about continuing education in a minute but we have a package called clinical essentials it was for new primary care NPs it talked a little bit about contract negotiation and billing and coding but these things that you're saying i know we're not teaching in NP school I, like we touch on motivational interviewing and how to give report to another provider and how to make a referral, but we don't tell people, you know, that whole, the book, um, Crucial Conversations, which is a leadership book I love. I recommend it to everyone who's in a leadership position. I've reread it more than once. It always stings a little bit, but you know, how do we teach that difficult conversations, conflict management, talking to families? We need to actually teach them leadership skills because guess what whether you like it or not you end up becoming a leader <laughs> whether at the micro or macro level you as an advanced practice provider are going to be a leader of several people i agree and we do that there's a class in school and there's a dnp class but here's what i think happens no, no, wait a minute is... so you said dnp not everybody's dnp no, but we there's a leadership class in a graduate program. There's always. So we do it both places. That's what I'm saying. So if you got a graduate degree and then you went back, or if you do the DNP as a whole, there's a leadership class. I know because it's required curriculum. It's one of the things we do as nurses. You and I are not even going to delve she's, into the curriculum discussion. I know. I am. But in hey. episode one, you talked about what we don't have or the conversations we don't have with families. And I would argue that sometimes we do, they don't hear it. It's like a teenager until it's too late. So I could teach this stuff in the beginning of an NP degree till I'm blue in the face. And until they're out and they're in charge of a team or they have to run a code or they have to tell a family that this is it, you better go in and say goodbye. Or they have a conflict with their collaborative practice position. They don't, they go, oh crap, 
I don't know how to do this. I'm, wa I'm waiting my turn. I disagree. I disagree. <laughs> okay. I just let's think hear it, it needs to be timed better because they're not going to understand the value of a leadership class until, until the they're out there. So that leadership class should be in the same semester or during their last semester practicum. after they've been mm -hmm. through a practicum where they're responsible for patients, where they're responsible for providing care, where they're responsible for time management, where they start to figure out that guess what? There are going to be nurses that hate you just because you became an MP. Yeah. Nobody How tells do you, deal you with that. that. Right. That's my point is that so you need to give them. It has to be tangible. And it has to be real. Sometimes we're so fluffy textbook theory. Like, we just you know, I think that I think we're missing we're missing the boat on having people who have boots on the ground teach that class. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole other conversation In, instead so, of instead I of someone help. who hasn't seen the inside of a hospital for five years have someone yeah. who's actually been doing the job whether yeah. it be you know online virtual doesn't matter but like you got to give like real case scenarios you gotta you gotta be honest with these students you can't you gotta stop fluffing yeah and i think that's where i'm i'm different than most because I'll say it and I'll probably get flack for it is that there's a lot of students that don't like me because I'm, I can be pretty brutal sometimes when it comes to expectations and performance, because I feel that you, I require a lot out of you because at the end of the day, when you get out there working, you're going to be required to do a lot. You sent me an Instagram video on this very topic, which I would, I mean, and the magic words were, I am giving you this critical feedback because I need, I need to raise the bar. I need these outcomes to be higher. No, I have and, high expectations I, for you. I have high expectations and I believe you can do this or yeah. I wouldn't waste my time giving you the feedback essentially, right? Was that? I mean, those are the difficult. So then, you know, you could parlay that into why are students having such difficult times is because educators aren't having those conversations. Educators are. We have a lot of diploma mills that people are just wow. being churned out instead we, of we having can talk about why that is. I mean, that's about bottom line you, finances, not having those difficult conversations, those real yeah. conversations of that it's it's not enough to be a perfect straight A student. It's just not enough. In fact, most straight A students make pretty struggle. horrible clinicians. Yeah, they're gonna struggle because they haven't had any struggles previously. All right, I can help with this. This is where I can help. So let's talk about that, at least for another five or 10 minutes. Thank you staff for staying on. Um, so, so now I'm on the other side. I worked for years, I taught, then I was an administrator of a big NP program, and I, I've watched my career transition, and now I'm on the other side of that. How can I help NPs in practice? And I'm going to tell you what I see, and then I need your help, and I want your opinion from an acute care standpoint. But what I see in primary care continuing ed, many states don't have any requirement at all for CE. When they do, it's fluff, like every two years I have to take 
medication errors because I have an RN license. It's the same course I've taken every two years. And so I start to turn it off. So there, there, there's no value giving to continuing ed. It's only needed for recertification with a certain amount of farm hours. People are getting it for free. It's being cut from hospitals. It's being cut from primary care. Universities have cut it across the board where they can because it's all about how much bottom line money they make. And so people will just do it to meet a requirement, just like students and how many discussion board postings. Well, I made three postings and you only have to make three. It doesn't <laughs> matter if there's substance. How do we, with all these notes I just took, <laughs> do this and convince new nurse practitioners that I can at least help you or those who have been out in practice for a while? Because it certainly doesn't stay the same. Practice changes. Here's this thing that I know that you need that's not just meeting a licensing and certification requirement. So what can I do to help new acute care NPs? <sighs> <laughs> um do you want to think I about think that a little bit so so it's sort of like what i i said earlier is that acute care nps are underserved okay not only in programs but also in ces so for me an individual who is required to have a certain number of CEs for all the certifications that I have, there are only two, if not three places that I will go to get my CEs. One, because it's the only place I can find them. Two, they're quality CEs that actually help me in my practice. So the answer is finding out what the pain points are for acute care NPs. What is it that acute care NPs need to know more about? Um, I'm a very biased NP because I, I love the acute care side. I love teaching. I love the ICU. And it's all I've ever done. And I've always been in the inpatient world. Um, and I have a passion for it. So I'm very biased. So my problem is, is that I've been doing this a little while, so there isn't a lot left out there that's going to teach me what I need to be taught other than current events, other than updates, new guidelines, new updates. Right. It, I'm, I'm by far done learning, but it has to be worth my time and effort. So okay. most of the time, the Care NPs end up going to physician-led conferences because that's where the higher leveled education exists for instance someone like me who does bedside ultrasound the only place for me to get that kind of education is either to go to a very small conference given by like a hospital or a group or to go to a national conference like chest or sccm Correct. Which is thousands upon thousands of dollars. And it's usually a little bit above my pay grade. So it's a little bit more than than what I'm interested in. So there's got to be, we got to find a happy medium that's going to meet the pain points of okay. acute care NPs. You know, I'm writing, I'm writing all this down again. You know, like I feel that most new acute care NPs 
do not have enough knowledge when it comes to vasopressors, when it comes to vasopressor management, shock management, mm. being able to differentiate between the different types of shock and how to treat them. I don't think that new NPs have enough knowledge when it comes to everything respiratory, everything from asthma exacerbation, COPD exacerbation, acute respiratory failure, ARDS, all of that, and ventilator management. Yeah, Most people, ventilator management is intimidating because unless you're like me, you've never been exposed to it, or you had a scratch the surface kind of exposure. It was too much, too intimidating, so you just moved on, or you just let somebody else take care of it. Well, I mean, because someone can die, right? And the second that you realize just a change on event setting could kill somebody, you're like, ah, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it has everything to do with like, what are the big heavy hitters in acute care? Always antibiotic management, respiratory failure, um, shock management. Those are the real heavy hitters. And then anything that has to do with neurological injury, everything from stroke, to, um, you know, in my world, talking about like, you know, hem- hemor- you know, hemorrhaging, whether or not someone has a ischemia versus a hemorrhagic incident, what do you do with that? How do you recognize, you know, blood pressure management, you know, are you able to manage hypertensive urgencies and emergencies? Right, right. hypertensive crisis. You know, so it's, it's everything that you need to learn when it comes to managing acute care patients in the in, in the in, inpatient world. Yeah. But, but dialing that back to a new provider, I think that's where we miss we miss the boat. Okay. Most people in my shoes are going to end up going to like SCCM and chest because because we need something beyond entry level. I need something beyond entry level, but someone who has less than five years of practice, you know being able to manage the things that I've talked about, or maybe having a entry-level discussion on ECMO and understanding what ECMO is and why, why you need to know about it. Maybe you're not going to work in an ECMO facility, but understanding when a patient needs it or qualifies for it and where can they go, those kind of things. Right, and of course, palliative care. Palliative care is huge as, a, as our previous discussions is that mm-hmm. having having that having the death talk you know being able to have those difficult conversations i like that so, i could keep well, going i know i filled up two <laughs> pages just in the last 10 minutes i think this is good but also i would say beyond beyond education what i'm seeing too is connection and how do we provide that? And people who haven't been to an in-person conference don't understand what happens. And that's why they sit behind their laptop and do, which is fine. I'm going to cough again. I talk too long. <laughs> okay. I'm going to cough one more time. Say something amusing, Sean. Stop smoking. <laughs> even, even though I know you don't. So. Well, I know. I should take it up maybe and then I can quit. Um, but connection, taking time out to fill their cup with other professionals. I think those things can't be underestimated. 
And that doesn't always happen at a huge national conference or wherever. And we do that really well. But that's the other piece that's missing from this is the importance of in-person CE that no one's paying for anymore. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, in the beginning of my career, I, I went to all the conferences. And of course, you know, the pandemic, you change your your mindset and your approach. And now that we're, you know, more comfortable with going back into in-person conferences, I think we're all having to relearn how to do that. Because even someone with my experience, when I went to your conference this past fall, it, it took me a while to figure out what to do, you know, and that, you know, when you go to an in-person conference, most people create these, um, I want to say clicks, but everybody finds familiarity in people you sat next to or people getting the same kind of lunch or people are doing the same kind of activities. And then one thing leads to another. And then by the time you have those those fun conversations, the, con the, the, the conference is almost over, you know, because that's what happened to me is that I was I, I, I ran into the same people over and over again. And then one thing led to another. And it was that last day. I unfortunately had to leave the conference early, but that last day I ended up having a lot of social conversations with a lot of people. And I wish that I would have had that in the beginning of the conference, because then yeah. it would have made for a very different experience. Look, because it, whether it's we, like speed dating, you, you got to well, give them yeah. your phone here, put your number. In. <laughs> I remember one of the, I went to a business conference a couple of years ago, long time ago now. Um, and it was a, a business for, for nurses. It was a nursing business conference. And they actually had like a, a social cocktail evening where it was like a two hour thing where they had, it was just social hour. And then they had um, topics. They even created topics for you so that you could have, you know, you could break ice breaking conversations on, even though you're from another area of the world, we share the same struggles and that's where I relate nursing to like the military because I'm a, I'm a, you know, former military is that nursing is like the military. We all share the same struggles. We just, we just have, we, we, we need one conversation to make the connecting point. Like, Oh, yes. I did that too. Or, Oh, I traveled. Oh, wait a minute. I worked in that environment. Oh, I had that same kind of position kind of conversation. Yeah. So it, you know, sharing stories. Yeah. Yeah, sharing stories, you know, war we stories. We're working you know? on that. Yeah, war stories. <laughs> they are. Then we're back to that military yeah. analogy yeah. again. All right. This has been helpful. I know my staff is like, will you two stop talking to each other? I Listen, know they're texting. We, war we warned them. <laughs> I know we did. We we'll talk more. I think other things are going to come up. You've helped us tremendously. Like, thank you for going to the conference and you gave us some feedback as well that we needed to hear. But also I have a, we have an interest in this. I, I do believe the acute care population is a little underserved. Can I be the SCCM conference? Nope, I'm not gonna try. I'm just not gonna go there, Sean. That's, that's not, the point. That's but not who that we are. Correct. That? They have that, they fill that need. But, but we'll get there. And we do want to support new NPs wherever they are. So primary care and acute care, right? Primary care captures a whole bunch of stuff. But acute care has been this other side. And it's a struggle. I, I want to be there for those NPs. 
So we're working on it. I appreciate your feedback. I had, yeah. I did, I did, I did have a great time. It was a unique experience for someone that's never been to that kind of conference. Cause I quite honestly don't know if other conferences, there've been other conferences where they did primary and acute care at the same time. I really don't know that to my knowledge. I don't think that's very common. And I found that kind of fun because it was, <laughs> it, it, it puts you outside your comfort zone for a little while. And then of course there were plenty of topics that did not apply to me, but I didn't go there just for that. And I think that's where you have, you have to have that kind of open mind. Well, and I, you know, it's a circle of healthcare. And so for me to think about what you're saying in acute care has affected my primary care practice. How do I keep people from getting there? And it also should feed what you do in acute care. Did you not have XYZ management ahead of this time? Was no one, or connecting them as we move them out of the acute care system? You need XYZ to go forward. So we all got to play in the same field different parts of the field, not a shortstop. I think so. we all need to realize that like you and I are your primary care, I'm acute care, but you and I have had hour long conversations about topics that we share. Correct. And I think that's the part that people don't realize. That, yes. that even though I take care of a very different population in a very different way, we share the same struggles. And I think that's the, that's the secret sauce, I think, is that, you know, I don't think acute care NPs, I myself am still, you know, navigating through that is that, you know, having conversations with primary care, you'd be surprised <laughs> what you can learn. Now, are you going to give me the information I need when it comes to, you know, my practice? Probably not no. most times, yeah. but the intangibles, the, what do we call them? Soft skills, even though they're, I would consider them hard skills, the soft skills we all share. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's good all the way around. Tell, you, is... tell, tell your staff, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm keeping you now. <laughs> no, I think this is great. And I would say, you know, we're going to keep working at this. It takes more than one time. So we're going to try again in Boston in August. Of 2024, we have an acute care and a primary care together. There'll be two days and there'll be two days of farm again. And well, <laughs> we might make you go, which leads me. I mean, people need to know that you're you're doing some critical care education as well in in some new formats that I think are going to be important and resonate because students are learning a little differently than they used to, thanks to the Internet. So people should look for you like if they need to. You have your blood gases out, right? Interpretation <laughs> of blood gases, which is always confusing. So I, you know, respiratory acidosis, metabolic acidosis, I don't know, change the vent setting. So I think it's good. So I'm going to plug you for that. People can find you on social media, right? All over the place. Just look for my my handle everywhere. It's just my, my name. So Sean P. Dent. So it's, I'm... I've been on the internet for almost 15 years. I'm pretty easy to find. You are, you are. And I appreciate your candor. I encourage everyone to follow you because it's always entertaining. And I think you connect on a level. People ask you questions and they, you call them your tribe. That reminds me of that. And what's the book about building tribes? It's a quick read. It's so good. Yeah. I'll, I'll think the about it. It's a leadership book. 
Yeah, yeah. well, I'll find it for you. You're reading leadership books now too. We can talk about that sometime. <laughs> um, so people can find you there. I'm going to close this out. Thank you for your time. I know it's precious. Nobody gets to make more time. So thank you. Um, Always a pleasure, my dear. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Uh, for everyone listening, thank you for tuning in to this part two of our conversation with Sean. Well, thank you for listening to the Friends of Enpace podcast. You can find us on all the major podcasting platforms. Please rate us, leave a review. Again, we have a, some free CE there in a couple of podcasts. So go and look for that. We're grateful for the grant funding for those. And check out our learning center for more. We always have some free CE on current topics. There's a COVID drug-drug interaction there that I have used every week of my practice the last six weeks when prescribing Paxlovid. There's also a great one on obesity management, which is most of my patients. But come and see us at learn.npace.org. Thank you again to Sean. Thank you to my staff for letting us ramble forever. And we'll catch you on the next episode. See ya.